Thanks, Katie. Thanks, crew. Jesus is our firm foundation. We put our trust in him. One of the things about the Christian life that's very important to realize is that trust begins, I believe, in a moment that we call conversion. It's something that happens when the Spirit of God moves into our hearts and takes our hearts of stone and gives them gives us hearts of flesh that are able to be Godward and respond to God. I believe we are brought in a moment from darkness into light, from death into life. But it's very important to realize that that moment begins a lifetime that goes into eternity. That moment where you put your trust in Jesus, maybe you did it when you were four, maybe you'll do it this weekend, maybe you haven't done it yet and you're considering it, but that trust in Jesus we put in him happens at the beginning of a relationship with him, but then it begins a journey. It begins a relationship. And singing as we just were doing is an expression of what we believe, but when we sing, when we proclaim in any way, it's also a solidification of what we believe. And so I've never sung any hymn or worship song with 100% belief. I'm on my way to that. Now, I may believe it a lot. I may believe it so much that I will lay down my life for that belief, but I will never be completely aligned in my head and heart to who God's created me to be until I see Jesus face to face and I'm completely conformed to his image. We're all in a process. The reason we sing that is because it's what we believe, but it's also because we want to believe it more. My goal every time I sing is to believe what I'm singing a little more when I'm done than when I started. And that's why we gather like this in a weekend like this, because we realize there's a process to the Christian life that we commit to. Jesus is our cornerstone. He is our rock. He is our firm foundation. He's the one in whom we trust. But that takes a daily, actually a moment-by-moment trusting And so there's a past, present, and future element to the Christian life we need to realize. And what I want to emphasize in our few minutes together with this morning's time right now is the importance of interdependence, the importance of the fellowship of the saints, the importance of the communion of saints. It's been said there is no such thing as solitary Christianity. And we are created by God relational. God's relational has been for all of eternity among Father, Son, and Spirit. And when He makes us, He makes us like Himself relational. Relationship with Him is the primary relationship He's created us for, but He's made us, along with that, necessarily, inextricably relational with one another. You were created to be who God's created you to be in relationship with God and others. You were created to become who God's created you to be depending on relationships, depending on one another. And if there's anything that you could identify as a American value, if, if, I know maybe probably all of you weren't raised in an American context, but if you were, which is the majority of you, there's something identifiable about American culture maybe more than anything else, and it's what's called individualism. That we're all about 
branching out and not needing anyone and manifest destiny and go west, young man, and don't depend. Don't be a townie where you stay home in the town you were born in. You got to branch out. You got to go out. You got to be a self-made man. But what you need to realize is there's never been one self-made man. We're all made by God and dependent on him, and we are made for one another. We're created for each other. We call this the church, and so I want us to think about what it means to be the church. Now, church is a word, ecclesia, it means the gathering, those gathered. In other words, in the Old Testament, when the shofar blows, the people of God show up, the gathering, the assembled people of God is that church. In the New Testament, it's that universal church that is everyone who's trusted Jesus, but identified in a local church, the leaders of which are commanded to shepherd the flock under their care. And so we recognize a universality to the church, but also a church local that is created by God and is the only institution that will continue into eternity. And so we have got to recognize that when we become children of God by faith in Christ, we acquire not just God as our father through adoption and new birth, we acquire a whole bunch of new siblings. And that's how Christians refer to each other in the New Testament more than any other way. Brother and sister. We're family now. And in many ways, we're more family than your earthly family. Your earthly family at times in the history of the church has been something you need to say goodbye to when you become a Christian. I, I'll never forget meeting a young lady in India who she, the day she became a Christian is the day she said goodbye to her family because her Hindu family disowned her. And the pastor and his wife who led her to Christ became her new parents. That's why Jesus says wild things like unless you hate your mother and father, and you, can't, you can't be mine. In other words, there's got to be a relative valuing of Jesus. But what we have then is the people of God, the family of God is our truest family. It's who we are. We don't share DNA, but we share the most important thing, a spiritual life that Jesus gave us. And so we're going to think for a few minutes now about what it means to be the church. Do any of you know the Apostles' Creed by memory? By Anybody know it? Wow, one, one in the back, <laughs> two. All right, well, you're all going to learn it now. Let's stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed together. You ready? Let's stand up and, and recite this like believers have for, for a couple millennia. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Yeah, you may be seated. Is that glorious? Oh, I just love good doctrine concisely expressed. It should make you jump up and down. It's just absolutely beautiful. So that's the Apostles' Creed. Christians have been reciting this 
for a couple thousand years almost, and it's got some vital teaching about the central truths of the Christian faith. But if you ever notice the underlying part, we're, we're saying, we're declaring, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic with a small c there does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. Anybody know what Catholic with a small c means? Universal. There you go. Who said that? Yes, the universal church. Right. Thank you, doctor. Um, yeah, just what the doctor prescribed. Yes, so, so the universal church, the church wherever you find it in the world, is identified by people who believe in Jesus. So uh, the, the universal church that is holy, that is set apart, that's distinct from every other person in the world. We don't want to fall into some unhealthy us-them mentality, but we most certainly want to have an identity as the people of God that recognizes that we are the hagioi, the holy ones, the saints of God. Those set apart, devoted to Him, for Him, for His glory. That's what our primary identity is now. In all the earthly identities we tend to gravitate to that identify us so significantly, whatever those may be demographically or hobby-wise or musical tastes, those completely pale in comparison to our identity as the people of God. And so we've got to recognize that the Holy Catholic Church is something we believe in. Now, it's interesting because you think, well, we are it. Like, we believe in ourselves? Well, kind of. But what we mean when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church is that we believe God's created this thing called the church. It's not something we create. We never need to become the people of God. If you've trusted Jesus, we are the people of God. God's created this people for himself that's called the church, the gathered ones, and we believe that God's created this. Now our job is not to become something, we already are, our job is to act like what we've been made into and identify with one another in a way that transcends all the earthly things that will even divide us or unify us. And so the Holy Catholic Church is something we believe in as a God-created reality. And so would you open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to look at this passage. So Hebrews is written to weary, persecuted Jewish believers in Jesus who are having their homes ransacked. You, you know, you may have your coworkers roll their eyes at you when you talk about Jesus to them, but you probably haven't had your home ransacked by people who are persecuting you because of your Christian faith. Well, they have. They haven't had any martyrs yet, we're told, but it seems like it's not going to be very long before that's the case. And so they're thinking of throwing in the towel. They're wondering if all this Jesus stuff is all it's cracked up to be and if it's worth what they're going through. And so the writer of the Hebrews is wanting to encourage them and exhort them and instruct them to hang in there, to not quit as the culture gets increasingly hostile, as Johnny so helpfully laid out for us last time. And so they're in a similar circumstance. And so he's trying to more than anything else get them to understand that Jesus really is the great high priest we all need. He really is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He really is the one who paid the sacrifice for our sins. And I just want to read this section here as he moves from the indicatives, the done deal facts that Jesus has accomplished, the realities of the glories of Christ He's actually gone through nine supremacies of Christ up until the book of Hebrews is an awesome book. 
It's all about who Jesus is. And he's gone through Jesus as the Son of God, the final complete revelation of God, the heir of all things, the Father's agent in creation, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the sustainer of all things, the one who made purification for sins, and the exalted one. These nine excellencies of Christ is what he's been holding up. But now he shifts from all those realities and he starts to emphasize imperatives, what we need to make sure we do to make sure our lives are grounded in Christ. And so here's some of those. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. So good. Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, making us think of the curtain that stood between the people and the holy of holies, real access to God, that now has been taken away, torn in two. Literally, when Jesus dies on the cross, that's what happens. But spiritually, it's what happens because we have access to God now through his blood. The curtain, that is, through his flesh. His flesh was torn, so the curtain could be torn and give us access. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All that Jesus has accomplished for us is something we take to heart now deeply. Let us hold fast, verse 23, the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So as we were singing firm foundation just now, we were were not just expressing what we believe as we've said, we were standing firm more We were clinging to it. We were guarding the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. We were deepening our faith. We were helping each other deepen our faith as we sang in the beautiful chorus that was created by the the voices in here. That when you worship, you're not just doing something individually, you're doing something corporately and collectively. And so we recognize this glorious truth. And then he gets very practical. Let us consider, think hard, seriously ponder. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you're weary if you're struggling, if you're racked with doubts and anxieties, if you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes wondering if this whole Christian thing is all it's cracked up to be, what do you do about that? You hold on to the faith that's been given to you and you gather together. That's what he's saying. He's saying, hold on to this faith. And it doesn't just happen. You don't drift toward deeper faith. That doesn't happen naturally. What happens naturally is drifting away from God, not toward God. And so we gather like this because we need to. 
And we gather regularly throughout our days and weeks because we need to. We know that we will become emaciated and anemic spiritually if we don't move toward God intentionally. And we do that collectively. We do that as the people of God, growing in our confidence. We're abiding in his love together. It's always about Jesus, but it's about us together moving toward Christ. So grounded in this blessed confidence in Jesus' finished work for us, we're able to draw near, verse 22, hold fast to our hope, verse 23, and then consider how to encourage one another to love and good deeds. The gospel's true, and since it's true, we've subjectively experienced it. We move out in confidence based on what Jesus has done. We recognize the past, present, and future fulfillment of everything we needed Jesus to do and we move out in growing confidence. We draw near to the throne of grace because of Christ. And since we have this faith, hope, and love in Him, we gather. And there's something incredibly sacred about this gathering, this cornerstone. He, he's the firm foundation. is grounded in Passages like this, when you're no longer, so then, speaking of those who trusted Jesus, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You were, but you aren't anymore. But your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the firm foundation, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if you identify with Jesus, you've got to identify with His bride. You know, it's really cool these days to bash the church. Even for Christians, especially for Christians in some ways. We, we don't like things we see in the church. We want to distance ourselves from it. And so we just haul off and start bashing the church. Saying, yeah, church is a bunch of hypocrites. I don't even like going much. because, As if... You're not part of the church. You're sort of this objective critic from a distance, evaluating how the church is doing as if you're not actually part of it, as if you're not actually part of the problems and a necessary part of the solutions. It's really cool to bash church these days, but, but it is the building, the structure of God. And this is, this is what you could imagine it looking like. It's, it's built on Jesus and the word of Christ, and the church of Christ, and the under-shepherds of Christ, and the disciple, the individual disciple, is standing on that foundation. So it's not that you don't have direct relationship and access to Jesus. It's just there's a foundation he's built, which is him as the core cornerstone, but the church is that structure he's building on top of that cornerstone. And Peter says, we're living stones we are the house of God being built up into be this structure God's created us to be. And so we're the people of God. That's why John says this stark statement, we know we've passed out of death into life, not because we love Jesus, although that's certainly true, but because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He's saying, if you say you love Jesus and don't love your siblings, in the family of God, you don't love Jesus. Primary evidence of your love for Jesus is your love for his people. 
And so, so recognizing this is absolutely essential for us to grow as God has intended us. Have you ever wept reading a dictionary? I have actually several times. Not like Webster, but although words are beautiful. Um, but reading theology dictionaries like the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology or the New Bible Dictionary. Oh, just read those and weep. If for the beauty of truth, I want to read to you and let you read the definition of the church in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. This is who we are as God's people. Listen to this. The church is the spiritual family of God, the Christian fellowship created by the Holy Spirit through the testimony to the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus. The church is a supernatural entity which is in process of growth toward the world to come. It is the sphere of the action of the risen and ascended Lord. All its members are in Christ. In Christ are knit together by a supernatural kinship. All their gifts and activities continue the work of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, originate from Christ, and are coordinated by him to the final goal. Then the church will appear in the age to come as the one people of God, united in one congregation before the throne, as one celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the son about which the whole mission of the church revolves. Public worship is the encounter of the risen Redeemer with his people. Evangelism is calling men to the Savior. Publishing the law of God is proclaiming his lordship. Christian nurture is feeding his lambs. And disciplining his flock, ministering to the needs of men is continuing the work of the great physician. Ah, is that fantastic? That's who we are as the people of God. But here's the problem. You notice he said we're in process. Actually, my favorite sermon I've ever heard on the church is by a guy named Steve Brown down from Florida. He's got this deep voice. And the title of his sermon is... The bride is ugly. Yeah, we're the bride of Christ. And you know how God finds us? Ugly. Rebellious. Hating him. No good in us. He didn't love us because we're so amazingly lovable. He loved us because he's so amazingly loving. And so the bride is ugly, so this glorious description of what the church is can be really hard for us to believe. It can be really hard for us to take to heart and, and see on the daily when we gather, even in a gathering like this. Because we're still messed up, we're still in process. The bride is ugly. But you know what Steve Brown's second point was in his sermon? She's getting better. <laughs> and his third point was one day she'll be perfect in resplendent beauty, looking like her savior. The bride is ugly now, but we're getting better. And we need to believe that because we believe in God's holy church he's created and that he's committed to making sure he makes us a people who glorify him and are glorified with him one day in resplendent beauty. And so the bride, yeah, the bride is ugly. But we've got to commit to it, realizing we contribute to its ugliness. So Johnny was trying to get at last session. He was just saying, look, don't approach injustice as if you don't have injustice in your own heart. 
He's just saying, don't, don't combat lies as if you don't have any lies. You're still battling yourself and even telling yourself. Recognize that you're part of this problem and you're getting better and you're part of the solution if you're part of the people of God. And so we've got to consider what this means. And what he's saying here is don't forsake the gathering. Now, when he says gathering, he means local church. He doesn't actually technically mean this even. This is parachurch. You're from all different churches. So I guess it is kind of gathering in that sense, that if you're here with your local church, you're gathering in that sense. But when he says this, what he's most clearly saying is, gather with that group of people you gather with regularly who have raised their hand and said, we're the church. We are identifiable in this community as a presence of Jesus himself that is making a difference as salt and light in this community. And we have elders, we have deacons, we send missionaries, we preach the gospel, we carry out church discipline, we preach the, the word of God with authority, we, we administer the sacraments, we do all the things the church is commanded to do. That's the local church, that group of people. And we've got to be connected to this. I talk to so many Christians who view the church not as a non-negotiable necessity for the Christian, but as sort of an optional spiritual discipline if it happens to be meeting needs I have. It's completely different, like, like journaling, right? Journaling is not commanded in the Bible, and I'm thankful because I've tried to do it many times, and it's always frustratingly a failure for me but God doesn't command me to journal. Good for you if you do that well, but that's an, that's an optional spiritual discipline that I don't have to do. That's not what the church is. The church is the people of God, and we are commanded to not forsake the assembling together of the church. If you're a Christian, you really only got three options when I read the New Testament, meaningfully involved in the local church kicked out of your local church because of unrepentant sin or a pagan. I really think those are the, there aren't this sort of quasi-Christians who sort of go to the church when they feel like it, treating the church like 24-hour fitness way more than the church. And so we've got to realize, first and foremost, being meaningfully involved in your local church, where, where you're serving. And so there's a presence we need to acknowledge. There's, there's a ministry we need to acknowledge that we get to take part in. We need truth telling in the local church. It doesn't just tell me what I want to hear. You know, when I'm self-deceived, it's and said, give me what I need, not what I want. And I can surround myself with people, just give me what I want instead of what I need. The local church isn't that. And so a clearly communicated commitment with a beautiful diversity where you don't just huddle in little groups of people just like you. I actually think one of the biggest problems in the American church is this thing called the homogeneous unit principle. That the church growth movement taught church leaders you know, two generations ago. That if you want your church to grow, give people all these little affinity groups. Don't, don't let them get to know anybody older like Johnny was saying before. Just make sure they huddle together with all those whatever it is, youth or singles or or older singles, or marrieds, or marrieds with children, and the elderly people, and, and we've got all these groups, and so the 80s and the 18s don't even know each other. How are they going to disciple each other in that way? Now, those groups can be very effective, but not if they segregate and separate, as if we're not segregated and separated enough socioeconomically and culturally and racially in the church already. 
And so for us to reflect a beautiful diversity among the people of God, where, where we are linked together in our love for Jesus, in our union with Jesus, not our hobbies, not our musical preferences, not the station of life we happen to be in, you could find someone completely lining up with me demographically, same age, same vocation, same graduated high school year, same musical taste, same hobbies, same interests, same sports teams I like. You could stand him here, and if he doesn't love Jesus, we may have all those things in common. But you know, if you took a little girl from a slum in India who loves Jesus, that I share so little in common with, with demographics, she's my sister in Christ. And my union with her so transcends my union with this guy who lines up with me in all those shallow things. You see, our union in Jesus is what we need to focus on here. Do you know people left our church because our mask rules at church were too strict for them? Do you know people left our church during COVID because our mask rules weren't strict enough for them? Do you know people joined our church during COVID because our mask rules were more strict than the previous church? And do you know Christians joined our church because our mask rules were less strict than the previous church? What are we doing? I'm not saying you can't have opinions about stuff like that. But we've got to be people centered on Jesus. My wife did her PhD dissertation in education, and she studied Christian college students' conceptions of community. She interviewed all these college students, these Christian college students. And even if they could give the right theological answers I'm giving this morning, when she asked them, well, where do you actually experience community? You know where it was? Hobbies. Ah, my surfing bros. Those are the ones I really... You know, people like Coldplay. She did it a long time ago. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it, 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 was, it was tragic that the experience of the people of God wasn't actually around Jesus. It was around the band you like, the hobbies you have. You know, and, and, and so we've got to move toward people different. Than, like, can I just challenge you, when you go to church, just look for somebody as different as you as you can find and go talk to her. Go talk to a construction worker, even though you've never worked a day of construction in your life. Go find a little kid with Down syndrome and talk to that kid. Go find a, a retired missionary and, and get to know them and serve. Serve among the people of God. Don't just be a spectator waiting to fill out your Yelp review of the church, which is how we can so often think as American consumers. But go as a servant seeking to be fed by God, sometimes deeply challenged by God, but seeking to serve the people of God with your mere presence as a starting point. But then you're engaged, engaged worshipful, servant-hearted um, ministry as well. I mean, we, we had a great church when we lived in Wheaton for seven years. And the third week we went to the church, a woman named Jane Hawthorne came up to us. She's actually Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary's sister. So Jane comes up to us, and we had met her. They had had us over, I think, our first week there. And she said, so, Don and Eric, it seems that Bethany has become your church. You're here three weeks in a row. And he said, yeah, we've decided this is where we're going to settle. And she said, oh, wonderful. So, 
what would you like to do? She said, because every Christian should do at least one thing in the church, don't you think? And you need to know Jane. She's incredibly wise. She's kind of like Yoda. It's like, she just, yes, Jane, whatever you say is true, right? Just amazing. And so, and she even had a job. She said, oh, so you'd like to do something wonderful. Here's what I'd like you to do. Here, hand out these visitor pads. People come in so they can get, we get, and she had a job for us. Until you serve, you're not really connecting with the church. And until you have a sense of ownership, because it's your church, you're never really going to understand what it means to be people, the people of God who are to love one another with brotherly affection. The church is where we should find our truest family. And God has provided an extended family for you in the church. And we live in an age where so many earthly families are really messed up, mine included. Not my, not my immediate family, but my, my extended family has a lot of difficulty in it. And we can find the mothering, the fathering, the brothering, the sistering, the grandmother and grandfathering that we all desperately need in the local church if we move toward it. And you'll be disappointed if you do because the bride is ugly. And we can't forget that. We're stiff-necked. We can be small and petty and messed up and sinful and disappointing. Sometimes I call my students the, the disappointment generation. So easily disappointed. So easily disappointed. But the bride is ugly. That one day she'll be beautiful. And the difficulty and the disappointment of relationship should lead us into deeper sanctification and deeper fellowship. Listen to Kevin DeYoung. The weakest Christians are those least connected to the body. And the less involved you are, the more disconnected those following you will be. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his ch children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. You have the, the potential to be a churchwoman or a churchman who is able to leave a legacy that loves the church, that values the church that grows in Jesus as our firm foundation in the context of the local church that we're commanded to. Just to finish off, a few quotes. Listen to David Getz. The biggest problem in any church I attend is myself and my love of self and my penchant to roam when I sense my needs are not being met. Frustration and conflict are the raw materials of spiritual development. All the popular reasons given for shopping for another church are actually spiritual reasons for staying put. They're a means of grace preventing talk of spirituality from becoming sentimental or philosophical. Biblical spirituality is earthly, face-to-face, -face, and often messy. By not taking my toys and playing elsewhere, that is, finding a church that, meets my spiritual, uh, that connects with my spiritual journey, I move forward in my spiritual journey. I give up control. I forfeit my opinions and environment of choices. Now, there are good reasons to leave churches Lots of different good reasons. I'm not saying that, that you, it, it, it's, an, it's a binding lifetime commitment to a local church, but we often leave for very shallow consumer reasons rather than sticking in for the long haul. And listen to C.S. Lewis. When I first became a Christian, I thought I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. I wouldn't go to the churches. I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. Not you, Katie Jean. Uh, but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. 
I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns were being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary comfort. You can be so hypercritical of the church. That church I mentioned to you we had when we lived in Wheaton, our first Sunday there, we sat directly in front of a woman who was a very bad singer. Have you ever done that? They sang a cappella in this church, which made it even more pronounced. Very bad singer. You know, not just a bad singer, but the kind who drags you down with her, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to just stay on key just with her even close by, right? Really bad singer. And I thought, if this becomes our church, we are sitting nowhere near her again. And I made sure when the service was over, I caught a glimpse of who it was so she didn't drag me down into her off-key hole. And so, over time, that woman and her husband became like our parents in the Midwest. They had us over almost every week after church. They gave us a key to their their home up in Lake Geneva. They treated us as their children. And they became like parents to us away from our families. Loved them deeply, incredibly generous. I, we were poor grad students. And I remember the first, uh, first month we were there, the, the, man, the man who was married to this woman who was a bad singer, he shakes my hand and I feel something in his hand. And I look at it, and it was a $100 bill. And he said, take your bride somewhere nice to eat. And I said, I could take her about 10 places to eat with this. I, this is pretty rich here. And they just loved us and cared for us. Well, we had been at the church about five years when I got a phone call that telling me that this woman had had a stroke. And she spent the whole day on her kitchen floor. Her husband had gone off to work, and after he left, she had a stroke, and she spent the day, and, and the person who called said, it doesn't look like Marilyn's going to make it. And so we were grieved, and we prayed, and you got to know Marilyn was one of those ladies who, she was in the fabric of the church, you know, like Dorcas in the book of Acts, where they say, Lord, she, Dorcas has died, but we need her, and Jesus raises her from the dead. And, and that's what we were praying for. We were saying, Lord, we know we could survive without her, but we don't know how would you please spare her life? And do you know what he did? He, he did a miracle, and he restored her. He, he saved her life, and he restored her, not to complete, unimpaired functioning again, but almost. I mean, you wouldn't even know if we weren't looking really carefully that she had had this massive stroke and spent the day on her kitchen floor. And do you know, just two months later, she and her husband walked into that church after we had prayed this spiritual mother to health and God granted those prayers. And she walked into that church and we were all in tears when we saw her walk in. God saved her. And we started singing. And her voice hadn't improved at all. <laughs> but how do you think her voice sounded to me? like an angel. It couldn't have been more beautiful. 
It couldn't have been more beautiful. You see the difference between experience grounded in relationship and experience grounded in independence as a consumer. Oh, no, I wanted to hear this dear mother in the faith sing as much as I possibly could. See, until you really become devoted to the family of God, you won't experience the family of God the way God's created us to do it. So, let's be the church that God created us to be. Johnny. Let's talk. He's scooting up here. He's going to do a, a, fi- a fireman's roll or whatever you call it. What, what do you call that? Stop, drop, and roll. No, <clears throat> thank you, Eric. I, I, when we just started talking about how we were going to divvy it up, one of the things I wanted Eric to address was a love for the local church, and I say it to students often and to people today. We are welcomed into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but we're never welcomed into merely a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's always corporate. It's amongst the body of Jesus Christ. So we can't be welcomed into a family and then tell the father, tell the groom we hate his bride. And so I think two things maybe. We have maybe a few minutes here before lunch. You talked about how Jane Hawthorne came up to you and said, so what are you going to do? I think today they're potentially, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it, is a snobbery of my gifting. What Uh am I going to do? Um, obviously, there's this idea that church is something you attend. Part of the reason there's a lack, uh, likely a lack of love for the church is because it's an event in many people's mind where everyone is supposed to serve them, make them feel welcome. Um, but the Bible says that the church is something you belong to and something you're called to serve in. If someone's asking, Eric, how, how do I get involved in such a way where I serve and how do I know my spiritual gifting? And then really what I want you to answer to is that this, there's this idea that I need to know my gift before I start serving, which I think is totally backwards. Yeah, so let me just think about Moses at the burning bush. God says, go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go, right? And what does Moses say? Who am I? He's self-referential. And God does what he does in that moment often which we find pretty annoying, I think, sometimes. He answers a completely different question than the one Moses asks. Moses says, who am I, and what does God say? I'll be with you. Now, Moses did not ask, will you be with me? He did not ask, who are you? But God signs him up for a theology class and assures him of who he is in his presence with him. And Moses keeps saying, I don't speak well. You gotta find a guy who doesn't, doesn't speak as poorly as I do. And God says, didn't I make man's mouth? Don't I make him deaf or mute or blind? Am I not the Lord who's the creator? I'll be with your mouth. See, Moses was starting with recognizable talents he did or did not have. God wanted him to be God-centered, theocentric. He was profoundly mozocentric, and he needed a shift to be God-centered to enable him to do things he never would have been able to do otherwise if God didn't enable him to do it. I do think we've Americanized spiritual gifts to the point where it becomes a pretty narrowly defined job description that the church needs to find for me if I'm gonna be fulfilled instead of leading with needs. What are the needs that I can meet? Mike Rowe, you guys know Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs, he's a brilliant guy. He, he said the dumbest advice he's ever heard is follow your passions. <laughs> he said what you need to do is follow where the needs are. 
And you know what happens usually? Passions follow. He talks about a guy who um, said, what are the needs in my city? And he said, sewage treatment. That, that's the biggest need I can recognize. And so he became a guy who worked in sewage treatment. He became a billionaire. It became a passion for him. Who starts off saying, sewage is my passion? But, it, but I know in, someone, but... <laughs> but in the church, if we lead with needs, you know what often happens? God uses us out of our weakness and gives us passions we didn't know we could have and abilities we didn't realize we had. I think that's so helpful. You know, I remember always one of the most common questions that I hear, and maybe that you would as well, Eric, is just how do I know my spiritual gift? And I remember a few years ago I was in Nepal with some of the Hume team, and we were going to these little village churches, um, and I just thought, and I was watching these guys work all day, but then labor to try to put on a healthy church, the service to teach the word, to yeah. feed the people. And I just realized no one at any of these churches that I've been to all around the world has ever, went, has ever wondered, what's my gift? You know, what am I good at? Uh, they've just seen that there's a need, and then they meet the need, and then God gifts the person that's going about to meet the need within the church. Obviously, there's certain callings and certain giftings, but I think sometimes there's this reservation and hesitancy to get in the game because you don't know if you're a quarterback or a running back. And the Bible says, well, just start blocking, start plotting, start moving the ball. Go ask someone if they need any chairs stacked. And then obviously we can, uh, at that point, begin to serve. Even my, my, uh, my story with even teaching was because I met a student that got sent to Juvie Hall, and I went in to visit him, and they told me that there was no one there to teach the Bible. And I went, I gotta figure out a way to come in and start teaching the Bible. And that was for me, like a, there was a church ministry that went and did Juvie Hall ministry, and I started playing basketball and preaching through the Gospel of Mark every week. Oh. And that was my first time I ever taught, but it wasn't because I went, I wanna begin teaching the Bible. It was because I went, if I don't do this, who else will? Mm. And I think the Lord works in those scenarios a lot, and he's worked in my life continually in that fashion. Any questions? Just so we have a few minutes before lunch. Yeah, over here. What was your name, sir? Vincent? Uh, yeah, Great I mean, question, Vincent. Go ahead, Thank Eric, you. if you want. Yeah, I would say know your tendencies, know your idols, know the kinds of motives that sometimes lead us to burnout, which aren't the motives God has for us. Sometimes it's fear of man, performance mentality, perfectionist mentality, all sorts of things that could lead to that. Sometimes it's an incredibly wonderful tender-hearted, earnest desire to serve God with all you've got. And so you got to figure out what's going on here. And I mean, I was with a single, older single woman. I was just telling some 
some dear sisters in my church last night who are here from my church who are family to me. They are family to me. And where are they? They were sitting here last night. Oh, hi, guys. They're looking at you like, oh, yeah. we don't know you that well. So um, <laughs> they moved. Yeah, they're family. They're AWOL. No. Um, family to Eric. <laughs> and I, I was sitting with a guy, with, with a younger woman who tell, she was telling me how much she wanted to be married. And this older single guy comes walking up. And I'm thinking, hey, this might be providential here. <laughs> He comes walking up, and I said, man, you look tired. And he goes, yeah, I was playing video games till 4 a.m., exhausted. And he walks away, and she goes, like that, like, oh, my goodness. And so there's some people who are, are investing their lives in ways that aren't adding up to treasures in heaven, right? And you want right, to give them a little kick in the, in the butt. So, but others, you want to say, hey, know your limitations. You're not Jesus. Have, have time for good rest and play and naps and recreation and, and refreshing times with people who feed your soul and you do those things well. And I just finished a book called Tranquility, which is how to have a, a, a heart of shalom in the midst of the busyness of life. It's such a good book. And, and it was very helpful to me to, to say, okay, I can't grind everything to a halt, but can I be at peace inside even when life is really busy? And, and so just knowing the wisdom of the rhythms of life, different seasons that'll be busier than others, and, and the tension between knowing my finitude, knowing my limitations, but also being able to get what Paul says when he says, I poured my life out like a drink offering. I wasn't living in self-protective mode all the time. I gave myself, his whole back was one big scar. When, the one thing Jesus told him about his job description was you're gonna suffer. And he dove in. So, so it's this tension between knowing our limitations and pouring our lives out like a drink offering and knowing what's wise in different seasons of our life. I think maybe one thing, too, to highlight is culturally young adults in a Christian sphere increasingly, in my mind, have become obsessed with the idea of rest, that there's this like idea of Sabbath. And I would like to make the distinction that rest and relaxation are not the same thing. So when he's talking about resting, there is the biblical reality of rest, and that's where there's deep contemplation, consideration of God's character. You highlighted Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy. I think sometimes we view rest, biblically speaking, as synonymous with the video games, and those are, those are not the same thing. You can rest while relaxing, but I do think in this even this idea, I was reading this book the other day and talked about the, the key word for Jesus' ministry was that he was relaxed. And I just think that you read the book of Mark and there's one Greek word that occurs 46 times in Mark. It's the most prominent word in the gospel. You know what that word is? Immediately, immediately. Night, night is coming or I'll no longer be able to work. So there was a, an element where there's a pedal to the metal and I love the quote by Paul. But I think finding that rest is helpful because that's where you have accountability, even in my own life, transparently. Now there's older men in my life that help me manage my own schedule uh, just to go like, hey, I want my, pri my family to be a priority, the local church to be a priority. And I, I don't want to have some idea that this ministerial busyness is a badge of honor either because there's an element where I need to steward it for the long haul and that my greatest ministry before me is my wife and baby girl. And so those are even things where I think even having that accountability is helpful, but I think rest is different than relaxation, and I think that's a helpful distinction. You know, Vince, I wrote an article in the Worldview Study Bible 
on recreation. So I touch on some of these things. So I think you find some of that too on what you've done with the theology of play. Is that on Desiring God or where is that? Gospel Coalition. Gospel Desiring Coalition. God. I think that's also really helpful too to read what Eric has written on a theology of play. One more question and then we'll pray for lunch. Yeah, go ahead, bro. Yeah, so, so the lead reasons would be doctrinal, theological commitments that don't align with, uh, align with biblical commitments that, that you hold. Now, every church is going to have things that wouldn't be the way it would be if you were running the show, right? So there are core doctrines that you don't compromise on. There are even convictions that you consider when joining a local church. But then there are opinions where you can say, all right, the worship style isn't exactly what I love the most, but I can hang with it. You know, the, the particular philosophy of ministry when it comes to children's ministry, or whatever it is, there, there are opinions that we can agree to disagree on. But those core things are the main reasons. But I, a church needs to be a biblically grounded, gospel preaching, great commission concerned, disciple making church that cares for the poor and loves people well. Now, there's always going to be gaps in that. There, there are always going to be deficiencies and problems, and maybe that's one of the reasons God has you. Like, like I'll have conversations with people say, you know, I'm going to leave this church because I'm a really friendly person, and we've been here six months, and I just don't think the people are friendly enough. And I'm thinking, okay, you're friendly. We're not friendly enough. That sounds like a good combination to me. And so sometimes it's like I want this church to be more like I am rather than thinking, wait, maybe I can help this church be a be better with what I can bring. So there are doctrinal issues, there are, there are character and moral issues that are worth leaving a church over. There can be seasons of life where, where you think you'll be more helpful and effective in another church that has a, an orphan care ministry. Our church has this amazing orphan care ministry. And people actually joined our church because they really wanted to dive into that orphan care ministry. Now, they could have started at theirs, but maybe there was resistance or something or lack of buy-in. But but so there are reasons that are more personalized as well. But those, those theological, doctrinal, character, moral issues are the real deal breakers typically when, when somebody does leave. But then there are other, other considerations as well that may be legitimate. I think just going to church in your neighbor, in your community's help. If you're driving an hour and that's becoming wearisome in traffic all the time and it's hard to really be involved with people, you don't see your church members at the grocery store, that might be a good reason to find a closer church. That's not doctrinal, it's not moral, it's just practically, and practically wise. So I would have to sit down and talk with a person on a case-by-case -case basis to give advice on that. I think maybe one thing too with, in regards to church, you could say a doctrinal fidelity, but sometimes I think there's a, a doctrinal shallowness where there's no doctrine, so they're not contradicting anything right. biblically. Tozer says that we know what the church believes in what it says, but also in what it leaves unsaid. Which so, I think is a, yeah. a big important thing to maybe highlight is, and then one thing in that regard, I know certain churches, especially that are popular uh, amongst our generation, which talk so much about community. So you'll have someone switch because they go, the community is amazing. If you're at a church where all they talk about is community, the community itself is likely shallow because the depth of your community is always going to be a direct byproduct 
of the depth of your knowledge of who God is and his word. So the deeper the church is going into theological and doctrinal waters, the deeper the potential for the community that you're going to share because you're going to have an exalted understanding that we're both in the family of God. And so I think if you want deep community, you need deep teaching. Sadly, some churches that want... Are one or the other and I think that's partially where you can tomorrow at our church we're starting a five-part series on the church and it's called gather and we're talking about the church as a temple where we meet with God a hospital where we find healing a home where we find family a school where we find learning and a barracks where we find equipping for ministry and, and warfare so some people go for one of those or two of those but the healthiest churches are trying to do all of those kinds of ministries and the healthiest church member is the one who realizes that all of those are important. A lot of people go just for the hospital and not to be equipped for warfare. Yeah, or, the or church is a perfect or. place for imperfect people. And then you get there, you realize there are imperfect people. And then you go, wait, what am I doing here? I thought the church was full of perfect right, people, right, exactly. which is always funny to me. It's okay to not be okay, but then you see sin in the church. And then you go, wait a second, this is hypocritical. No, that's why the church is full of different people uh, that are both sinful, struggling, growing, learning. I would maybe consider adding multi-generational to that list, because when I was 24, I, I, you know, when I first got to Hume, I don't know, seven years ago, people were going, hey, we should plant a church. Instantly, I know, biblically speaking, I would be an idiot to plant a church at 24, because I don't qualify for the job. And so part of it is, I need older men, that's why even, I'm so thankful for the older men in my life, and I am sometimes I would gather with even my staff at the end of a the summer. They're fired up about what the Lord has done, and I have 19, 20-year-olds going, we're gonna plant a church, and I just say, no, you're not. Um, and so I would add multi-generational because of Titus 2 and because I need men with gray hair in my life, and so do you. Speaking of, Eric, will you pray for lunch? <laughs> Lord, we thank you for gray hair. We thank you for the wisdom that comes with it. We thank you sometimes. We thank you for your presence here with us as the all-wise God, and we thank you that you have restored a relationship between us and you in Christ, and you have created a relationship between one another. And we recognize that we're family, and Lord, it's hard to live that out very often, but I pray you'd help us to live up to what we are, what you've created us as, and that we would do it faithfully and unselfishly and with with a depth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.